You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to part two of this podcast with Ross Tucker from the Sports Science Institute of South Africa. Ross, one of the big things um, we're hearing with football players playing 70 professional games a year and more is the challenge of overtraining and, and causing injuries. When you're working with athletes, how do you monitor overtraining both in endurance sports and risk of injury in competitive weekly sports? Yeah, the um, I mean, it seems to be there's a big there's a big focus now in sports science to go towards athlete monitoring strategies. And um, for example, we've recently developed software that allows that to be done, athlete monitoring software. I, I think that uh, having having been involved in a couple of teams, my worry is that it's it's a little bit simplified sports science, which I think is often a good thing. But I, I would like to see the field evolve to the point where we can actually determine whether an athlete is overreaching and overtraining based on more than just their feedback. I think that's that's where we are at the moment, certainly here. I've heard recently that in the UK they have really gone uh, maybe to extra lengths to try and identify blood markers, testosterone levels, cortisol levels in the saliva. Um, IgA, I think, is one of the candidates that they're looking at. Those obviously, in an ideal world, you'd be able to do those, but they probably are beyond the budget and the capacity of many teams who are equally interested in trying to prevent overtraining. So I think it's the, the, the recognition that overtraining affects the psychology of the athletes and the mood state and the emotional state is where it seems to have gone. I, I just think it's an unsatisfactory area overall, and I think that it's one of the big potential areas for growth in exercise science because I don't think anyone has managed to put their finger on those one or two factors that accurately predict overtraining. So I think that's where... Uh, there are a few others, but I think that's where one of the big um, growth spurts almost in the practical relevance of an exercise scientist will come from in the future, particularly with more commercial demand for more games, more playing time, more value per player. If the player is an asset and he's injured, you're losing money on him. And I think that will eventually drive that hopefully a little bit further. Because at the moment, we're we're kind of relying on self-reporting. and I'd, it's It's good, but I don't think it's as good as it will be or can be. And tell us more about the software that you're working on or that you're using that you're allowed to share without having to kill me on this BJSM podcast. <laughs> yeah, so that was software that the Sports Science Institute has developed because um, I think there's a recognition that particularly when you're working with a large squad of players, you're, you're managing so much information. Uh, you're managing the training load, how many minutes the guy's doing of field training at different intensities, how many minutes they're doing of gym work, how many minutes they're doing of tactical or technical training and analysis. Then you're also trying to manage the diet, the sleep patterns, how well they've recovered from one session to the next. You're trying to integrate all these different ingredients, call them, or elements into one big recipe that spans possibly two or three seasons or an Olympic cycle of four years. And so when you're, when you're doing that, I think you can very easily be overwhelmed with information. So the software that was uh, developed here is an athlete monitoring system, which is designed to help the coach document and track the training loads, the perceptual scores, the recovery, the um, time invested, the nutrition, the quality of uh, training and recovery and so on in a squad of players so that they can try and better respond and preempt changes like undertraining or overtraining or injury or burnout. So that's the idea. I mean, there are many of them around, and, uh, and I think that's a reflection of the realization that this is the most important thing for sports scientists who are involved with teams. What's one of the 
call them the highest leverage activities that these uh, that these professionals can do. Um, and and we we've developed our own one, which has been used in a number of our Olympic athletes and a number of the professional teams here in South Africa so far. And for our listeners who aren't part of the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, can they access this commercially um, or by emailing you or uh, is it just for a, a select group at the moment? Yeah, that, that's the idea. It's, it's still in its development phase in terms of commercial rollouts. So it's been launched, as I mentioned, with, with the South African Olympic Committee this year. Um, a number of athletes have gone into that, both team and individual, and it's used by a few of the other national and, and professional teams, uh, football, rugby, and so on. I think in time, it will probably be uh, something that teams, even overseas, can can buy. Um, but that'll and that'll be sold. The platform, I think, will be the website, um, which is Sports Science Institute of South Africa, abbreviated. So that's ssisa.com. But um, I'd be lying if I committed to a specific date on on that right now. No, sure, but that's an exciting thing for our listeners to be aware of, and I know that. Clubs in professional football, for example, do have lots and lots of GPS data, for example, as they try to optimise player performance and player rotation. Um, do you think GPS is going to be an important part in certain sports? I do, but my experience with GPS, and I know this is shared by, by many who've, who've used it, is that you can very easily be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of information that it provides. So we're, we're trying to use GPS right now, actually, to quantify the, the physiological demands of playing uh, sevens rugby. Obviously, that's going to um, uh, be one of the big things to look look at in the future for us with sevens coming into the Olympic Games uh, in 2016. And so we've tried this GPS out, but the, the, the reality is that at the moment we kind of feel like we're navigating through a dark maze with our eyes closed because... There's so much information, and we we don't know yet which of it is relevant and which of it isn't. So we're trying to filter out, and I think that's the that's the big challenge when you start introducing technology into sport. It's not what you do; it's what you leave off, because it can quite easily paralyze a team. I remember hearing that one of the professional football teams in in the English Premier League has got a team of about six or seven analysts to look at their GPS data, which is amazing if you have it, but most teams won't, and they'll get GPS. And suddenly they'll get this trickle of information that they didn't have before, and the next thing it'll become a, a flowing river, and suddenly it'll engulf them as a tsunami. And and the problem is you can actually be paralysed and misled by all that information. So I think the GPS will probably take off in a big way, and then it'll be scaled back, which is similar to certain other technologies. For example, when when game analysis technology was first developed for sports like football and rugby, um, professional teams had up to 20 people sitting there watching games on computers and coding every mistake, every decision, every player made. And it would take about 48 hours per person of uh, working time to produce a report, and it was just not sustainable. And what happened after that is that they quickly realized which were the five or six most important factors to look at, and they chucked out all the others, and now they can produce the same report within about an hour or two hours after the game. And I think that's where GPS has to go. So whoever's going to be driving that needs to, I think, understand like that there are there are practical limitations to how it can be implemented, and so therefore choosing what not to analyze is more important than choosing what to look at. And Ross, as we get towards the end of this podcast, I'm conscious you do have to go. 
Um, we want to touch on the, the Tour de France and um, just a little bit on anticipation and, and pacing. So let's uh, potentially link those two. But um, your thoughts on the 2012 Tour de France? As a <laughs> as a race and as a spectacle, um, in terms of its entertainment value, it's not high up there. I'll, have to, I'll be honest, which will probably uh, see me incur the wrath of British cycling fans everywhere. But I would make the distinction between saying that this wasn't an exciting race because it had such an air of inevitability about it from from really before it started. I I know that people were saying, you know, it's not certain is Wiggins going to have the form, and there were a lot of questions. But I think. The 2012 race really was a it was a perfect storm of all the factors that you need to actually create nothing. <laughs> Wiggins was so dominant; he was part of such a dominant team. Most of the most of the um, rivals that he might have had in the mountains were not racing either because of doping bans or injuries. And it turned out that his biggest rival was on his own team, which is ultimately what created the intrigue. But I think I think as a, as a spectacle, then it, it wasn't the best to. But in terms of, if you view it critically with a more analytical eye and you look at what Sky have done and the way that that was done, and especially as, as call it the, this is almost the, um, the starter course before the Olympic Games where we'll be learning a lot more, I think, about the role that sports science and expertise has played in, in Great Britain's Olympic aspirations. I think that Sky have been unbelievably impressive in how they controlled that race how they planned the whole season and the last three years to win it. So I think impressive, but entertaining, not so much. And not all listeners will be familiar with the role of the team and Sky specifically. So can you share a story um, or two to illustrate how they have provided this dominance? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, and I know this is the same model that is used Certainly we, we would use it, and I know many other sports uh, codes and federations would use it, is you always want to stand, understand exactly what it takes to win. So your starting question is, what does it take to win the Tour de France, the Olympic long jump medal, the Olympic 400-meter title, whatever, that, whatever it is. You ask, well, how are we going to win this? And then you, you measure things, and this is, the, this is what science is. Science is measurement. And you say, if we do ABC, we will be unbeatable. That's a hypothesis. So, so in actual fact, winning the Tour de France is a scientific experiment that Sky conducted. They knew that given the course profile, given what they know the physiology of their riders is compared to their competitors, they knew that if they did X, Y, and Z, they would be unbeatable at the Tour. And I think that's what they prepared for. And so Wiggins assembles around him a team of individuals who each have a very specific function. When it comes to the flat stages, he's got men who can get onto the front of the peloton and control the pace and control where he's positioned and protect him and so forth. When it gets into the mountains where the race is won or lost, he's got similarly a team of men who he knows can ride at a certain power output. And I think they worked out, and I saw this was alluded to in the media, is they worked out that if they went at a certain power output, it would be so demanding that no one else would be able to attack them off that power. In other words, they could make the race just hard enough that they could neutralize everyone else, but not so hard that they actually ended up destroying their own team leader. And, and I think that's exactly what they did. So every time they got to a mountain stage, Wiggins and three of his, uh, call them lieutenants, hit the front of the course, hit the front of the peloton, and the pace was just high enough that they almost suffocated everyone else in the peloton. And I think that's a really cool illustration of how if you understand your sport, then you can con try and control the sport.
it makes for <laughs> what is actually sometimes fairly boring television, but it's impressive because I think it's an example of how if you ask the right questions and you know exactly what you're going to do and you walk to work towards it, then you can you can really see the plan coming together. And I think that's what Sky gave us in the 2012 Tour de France. Thanks, Ross. And you do a great job of explaining science, but you're an excellent scientist in your own right, which probably underpins some of your success. Um, can we just chat for a second about the uh, your review paper on performance and pacing um, from, yeah, the sure. from 2009? It was our highest cited paper in the last Impact Factor thing, so as an editor, very grateful for that. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Tell our clinician listeners um, and people who are looking to pace themselves in races and things, what can they take out of the science that you published about um, sure. pacing and anticipating performance and probably linking it to Wiggins in some ways, I imagine, because that was perhaps what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, my my PhD, which which I did here at the University of Cape Town, was on that question, is how how do athletes manage energy allocation, thermoregulation, oxygen potentially limitations during exercise. And, and the way they do it is they pace themselves. So we know that on a hot day, you will underperform relative to a cold day, but you don't go out there and stupidly, blindly run or cycle at the same speed when it's 40 degrees compared to 15 degrees because your body knows that if it does that, it will very quickly start to accumulate heat to the point that you reach a critical temperature and you are forced to stop or worse. So in theory, you could you could actually do yourself bodily harm. So there's this question about what causes fatigue. And the theories have always been that it's the accumulation of lactate, hydrogen ions, um, potassium, calcium, whatever it is in the sarcoplasmic reticulum that causes fatigue and muscle. Or it's the accumulation of heat to the point where you get to a critical level of uh, hypothermia beyond which you cannot continue exercise. Or it's an oxygen limitation which affects either the muscle or possibly the heart. Or it's the depletion of glycogen. But there are all these different factors that are put forward to say this is what causes fatigue. But when you look at, and I use the word sort of in quotation marks, realistic exercise. In other words, when you look at an athlete who's in a training session or in a race, they don't exercise at the same workload all the way to fatigue. They're able to slow down or speed up based on a number of different factors. And what we looked at, what I looked at in my PhD and what that paper describes is what those factors might be and how our brain is able to make this calculation to slow us down or speed us up. And basically what it does is it takes in all these inputs. Think of a sort of supercomputer, which is getting information. How hot am I? Am I close to that critical level of hypothermia? Am I storing too much heat? Am I almost at the point of losing all my fuel reserves or depleting the fuel reserves? Am I close to finding a limitation in oxygen and so on? And based on that information, it interprets in the context of exercise what the athlete is doing and then decides that they can either speed up, in which case they increase their skeletal muscle activation, or they have to slow down, which is done by decreasing the skeletal muscle activation. And so, so we were able to show that during self-paced exercise, the brain is taking into account all these different physiological afferent systems, afferent feedback, and then adjusting the pace. Now, if you talk about the Tour de France, for example, with Sky, they, I think they knew that if they made the power output high enough, 
they were pushing people to that point where they would have to cross some threshold in order to attack. Now, as Wiggins knew that none of his major rivals would be able to drop him or go away from him because they would have to push their bodies to that point where body temperature, fuel utilization, metabolite accumulation starts to become a limiting factor. And so it was a, the question was whether he could get his optimal pacing strategy high enough that no one else would be able to match him. And that's ultimately what he, what he would have done. So I think the practical implications of that, there are many of them. It, it changes how we look at exhaustion. It changes how we define fatigue. It changes how we interpret things like um, heat stroke and high body temperatures because we start understanding that the physiology of humans doing exercise is homeostasis. And the purpose is to maintain some kind of balance. And we allow our body temperature to get higher and we allow our glycogen levels to get lower and our oxygen but we don't lose that balance unless there's some pathology there. So I think it's a really interesting field, which a number, and I mean, I would be the last person to try and say that we've we've been the sole people doing this work. There's now so much research from all over the world looking at this pacing and how it's regulated at sprints and long distance and all sorts of interventions. But I think it's, it's one of the more interesting areas because it also challenges the dogma about what causes fatigue. And you're saying it does change how people train and, and perform so a regular person listening to this who's wanting to run a personal best in a 10k race for example how can they benefit briefly from your research well they need to i think look at their their racing strategy first of all because what we typically observe when people do races is they start off fairly fast and then they slow down in the middle and then they speed up at the end and the big question is why 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 speed up at the end um, when you slow down in the middle? Because in theory, you, you had something in reserve, and if you'd accessed that reserve a little bit sooner, then those middle kilometers, which were slower, were could be improved. So, so it's to understand what does optimal pacing mean. Optimal pacing means as close to even as possible. I mean, I say this facetiously, but optimal pacing is to cross the finish line and fall over dead at the moment that you finish. That's what your object, objective should be. Uh, and then in terms of training, I think the same thing applies, is, is you have to practice that. I think a lot of it boils down to awareness. It, it doesn't change the fact that you still have to do the long runs, and you're still changing the physiology in the same way. You're still increasing the mitochondrial mass. You're still changing fuel utilization or substrate use. You're still changing capillarization and improving oxygen-carrying capacity, etc. But, but the awareness of how you're pacing yourself and how you're managing that physiology should be in most instances enough to find five, six, seven, ten percent in imp improvements in performance. Thanks for the great summary, Ross, of, of a bunch of hot topics. Ross, all the best with your athletes for the games and for the Rugby World Sevens and the other things that you're um, working with and developing a new program for athlete monitoring. It's a great pleasure to have you on the BJSM podcast and I direct listeners to your website, The Science of Sport, and your terrific Twitter account, which will have broken 20,000 followers by the time this goes to air. Thanks, thanks a lot, Ross. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Cam. Appreciate it. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com. <laughs>